Well, stop me if you've heard this before. Do you live to work or do you work to live? Are you working for the weekends or do you whistle while you work? Maybe you work hard and you play harder. If you love what you do, you're never going to work a day in your life. Or if you're a fan of 80s music, then you might prefer, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drums all day. From childhood, we've been asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? In high school, it transitions to, where do you want to go to college? And that's assuming you figured out what you want to be when you grow up so that the college you go to actually lines up with your career plans. And if you were to ask me in high school what I wanted to be when I was older, I used to joke that I wanted to be a beach bum by 30. I was a bum with goals. Now, the only problem with that was I grew up in Illinois, and so cornfields were more abundant than beaches and sand. And all of this, you know, what do you do next? You get to college. And what's the question you always get asked in college? What's your major? Not your name, but what's your major? And in college, I actually wanted to be an engineer, and turns out you have to be really good at math and science. Let me tell you two things I'm terrible at, math and science. I actually did a better job in college negotiating my grades in math than I actually did in my math classes in college. But all of that stuff leads up to that all-important career we're supposed to have by which we're going to invest the next 50 years, almost 90,000 hours in a third of our adult waking life working. And yet very rarely do we stop and ask the question, does my work matter? Does what I do with 90,000 hours and almost a third of my adult waking hours matter for eternity? Does it make a difference? You know, oftentimes we tend to think that, you know, what matters is reading my Bible, serving the church, leading a community group and other things like that that are important. And they are. So don't hear me say that they aren't. But this morning we're going to continue our series entitled All Things New, comparing and contrasting Solomon's wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes. And he talks about this life under the sun. And when he says that, he's using this phrase, under the sun, to communicate the idea that there is no life after death, that there is no God, and that death has the final word. So he's exploring, so in exploring Solomon's wisdom, we're going to explore the idea, the emptiness of human achievement, success, and toil under the sun, and that death becomes the great equalizer. And then comparing that to Philippians and what Paul has to say, because what Paul says is the truth about the reality of the world we live in. And it said, our toil and labor in the Lord is not in vain, that our faith deeply influences our work, and that it has eternal significance. So to begin, let's start by looking at what wisdom under the sun says in terms of our work and toil, starting in Ecclesiastes 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 18 to 23. So if you have a Bible handy, turn with me there, or you can see it on the screens either behind me or at home on your TV. Now this is what it has to say. I hated all of my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. 
This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So if you start with me in verse 18, we see that Solomon states that he hated his toil under the sun. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. And I think this begs the question for you and for me, what exactly did Solomon do? What was it that he hated doing under the sun? And if I were to prepare a resume of what Solomon did, it would go something like this. If you were to give him a title, he's the king of the 12 tribes of Israel in a kingdom that's been estimated in size between the size of Maryland and West Virginia. His peak net worth, his peak net worth, that's trouble to say, is $2 trillion. Now, again, not being good at math and science, someone might want to double check this. But I think he had 11 times the current net worth of Jeff Bezos. To give you an idea of how much money that was. Under relevant work experience, I would say he was an owner and a construction manager. Under examples, I would say he sponsored and built the first temple by which the first permanent dwelling place of God was. And he did it in seven years. He built palaces. He built his own palace, which was twice the size of the temple, and took 14 years. He built a palace for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. He was an urban planner. He built parks and gardens and pools that were a form of irrigation to water those gardens. He was an earthquake engineer, if you could call him that. The Bible describes Solomon's building style as he would have three dressed core stones and a fourth layer of trimmed cedar beams. Because in an earthquake-prone area, those trimmed cedar beams acted like shock absorbers to keep those buildings standing in case of an earthquake. But keep in mind, in all of these things that he built, the temple, the palaces, and all these other things, there was no Home Depot or Lowe's to get building materials from. In order for Solomon to build the temple, he had to source all of the raw materials to then build the temple. So just as an example... It's been estimated that the temple required 180 tons of copper just as a key ingredient to bronze. So Solomon didn't get to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and put in an order for 180 tons of copper. He couldn't go to the local wholesale dealer and buy bronze or copper. He had to start a copper mining operation to then mine the copper and then start a bronze manufacturing plant in order to manufacture the bronze needed to build the temple. For gold, he created an entire port city on the Red Sea just to import gold from a a famous city called Orphir. In that, he had to build ships to be able to get the gold to and from. And he was so good at it that between gifts given by others and by his imports, he actually averaged about 25 tons of gold a year. And that was over 39 years, and it ended up being almost 975 tons of gold that he imported. There was an archaeologist that I actually struggled to say his last name, but he said this about King Solomon. King Solomon alone in his day had the ability, the vision, and the power to build an important industrial center and seaport so comparatively far from Jerusalem. The wise ruler of Israel was a copper king, a shipping magnate, a merchant prince, and a great builder. If that wasn't enough, if you were to add a few things to his resume, he was a farmer. He had fruit trees and he had herds and he had flocks. And this is just the beginning of his resume and his relevant work experience. 
King Solomon, this copper king, shipping magnate, merchant, prince, and great builder, hated all of his toil under the sun. And it certainly wasn't for lack of variety in what he got to do day in and day out. And if we look at verses 18 and 19, we see why he hated it. He hated it because seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. Solomon didn't benefit from the modern business practices that we have today. He couldn't just sell his business to the highest bidder and retire off into the sunset. Solomon wasn't a venture capitalist by which he could have um, tried to get his initial investment out by having his business go public. The only types of mergers and acquisitions he would have been familiar with were either a hostile takeover from a warring neighbor or using marriage as a way for kings to diplomatically cement alliances. So through marriage or war were the only ways he could have a merger or acquisition. And thankfully, during his reign, he never had any wars, but he did have 700 wives. For Solomon, he used his great wisdom to acquire wealth. He played the game of politics extremely well. He secured alliances and peace through marriage. And yet, he has to leave it to somebody else. And who knows if that person will be equally wise, if that person will bring them into a greater season of prosperity, or if through their foolishness bring destruction and end to all that Solomon had created and built. And thankfully, um, while Solomon couldn't see the future, two things were extremely clear. One, Solomon was extremely wise. All you have to do is turn to 1 Kings 10, and it tells us this. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the, prince, the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom with God, with which God put into his mind. So if you just back up to when Solomon became king, God had appeared to Solomon and asked him a question. He said, Solomon, ask whatever you want for me and I will give it to you. And unlike you or me, I think Solomon asked for wisdom to govern God's great people. And he got wealth as well. His wisdom was so renowned. They didn't have Google to just look up anything they wanted to. They couldn't just pull out their smartphone to figure it out. But people would travel from all over the known world just to sit in Solomon's presence to hear his wisdom. They would try to challenge it and ask difficult questions, of which none were too hard for him to answer. And I share that to make the point I'm confident that the person who will succeed Solomon in his reign will not be nearly as wise as Solomon. The second thing that I think is clear, that being on our side of history, if we just do a quick look back, we can see that Solomon's suspicions were confirmed. That what happened to his kingdom after death? Well, when he died, his son Rehoboam inherited the kingdom. And during his coronation, during this season of him becoming king and actually having the formal process, he chose to ignore wise counsel and listen to his friends. And through that, he caused a civil war and the rupturing into two rival kingdoms. I don't even, there's no math on it, but I think within a year, he had already began to start the destruction of what Solomon spent an entire lifetime building and developing. It just vanished like that. So if you've turned to verse 20 with me as well, we're going to keep going on, but you see the wisdom of Solomon there. But so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone 
who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon, in his great wisdom, could anticipate the future. And what did he do? He gave his heart over to despair. Because giving his kingdom to someone with less wisdom and who's done nothing for it created that great despair. And personally, I think that feeling of despair is something that you and I probably can relate to more than we think. Because maybe you've worked your entire career. You started a business from scratch and you had raised it up and you sold it. This is your baby. And yet when you see what happened with the new owner, you see that they have run that business into the ground. You feel his despair and that frustration. Maybe you've worked diligently at your job and you're on the short list for some new job, some new role that you are beyond excited about. And yet somebody with less experience gets that job because of nepotism or for some other reason, but not because of their skills or their job qualifications. You and I can relate, even though we don't have the size and scale of Solomon's kingdom, I think we can relate to his despair about something he labored with wisdom to build and watch it just be destroyed. And if that's not despairing enough, with all of his wealth, you know what he couldn't buy? A good night's sleep. Because he goes on to say his wisdom, his great success, even robbed him of rest at night because he's tossing and turning and wrestling with the weight of responsibility to lead this kingdom to make new decisions that continue to bring them into a season of prosperity. So even his good works steals his sleep. That too is a vanity. It says it in verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. So King Solomon, the copper king, the shipping magnate, the merchant prince, the great builder, and urban engineer paints a very dreary picture of work and toil under the sun. He's tested the limits of human capability in terms of work, success, and wealth. And as a gift to all of us, he let us know what it's like at the top. It's all vanity. He worked and strived with unequal wisdom and literally built a kingdom. And through his death, had to give it over to somebody else. It was gone like that. And so Solomon's wisdom teaches us from Ecclesiastes that under the sun, where there is no God and no hope for life after death, death is the great equalizer and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. Death devours the rich and poor, the wise and the fool. No matter who you are or what you do, good or bad, death is inescapable and it renders our work under the sun meaningless. And Solomon, I think he leaves you and I with the warm fuzzies, doesn't he? Is anybody here excited to go to work on Monday hearing that? (laughs) No, I'm not. Um, But if we stopped there, it would be very bleak. But thankfully, King Solomon, in his wisdom, in talking about life under the sun, didn't have the last word. Because we don't live in a world where there is not life beyond the grave. There is life, death, burial, and thanks to Jesus, we have resurrection and ascension. Because of God, there is life beyond the sun and beyond the grave. Therefore, our labor and our toil is not in vain. And we see that by looking at God's wisdom through Paul and the letter he wrote to us in Philippians. So again, turn with me to Philippians 2, and we're going to look at 14 and 18. It says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So upon first reading this passage, I had to ask myself the question, what does Paul's labor in the Lord in vain have to do with Solomon's despair over who inherits his kingdom? I actually had to phone a friend to get my mind started in this direction. And it's a good question, and the answer, I think, is found in verse 16. Because it says this, Holding fast to the word of life, so that one day, so on the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So if we just take a moment and take a step back, we see that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he's an apostle. He's an ambassador sent by Jesus to represent God to those who are not Jewish. He authored 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He's a pastor, he's a church planner, and generally regarded as the most influential person in building the early church. Paul, the pastor and church planner, is writing to the church in Philippi, a church he personally helped establish. In context, he's encouraging them to be unified as a body of believers and telling them that their grumbling and disputing has no place in the church because it, in fact, it hinders their witness to a watching world. He tells them to hold fast to the word of life. He's urging the church to demonstrate their firm grasp of the gospel by the way they begin applying it to every aspect of their life, including their relationships with one another. He's wanting them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and to grow in their knowledge of God and experience how it makes all things new. And it's with this day's topic in mind, work, that we ask the question, well, why is Paul concerned about the unity of the church or their ability to apply scripture to every area of their life? And it's because Paul is asking the same question that Solomon asked. He's saying, upon my death, will all that I've labored for be in vain? Did my work matter? And the answer is yes. Paul's labor as a pastor and church planner was not in building buildings or cities, but investing in people in God's word. Paul loved God, and he loved the people of Philippi, and he wanted to see them flourish. He knew that only two things lasted for eternity, God's word and people. And at this point in the story, it'd be really easy for us just to dismiss Paul and say, well, of course your work mattered for eternity. You were a pastor. You're a missionary. You planted churches and wrote books of the Bible. You literally died a martyr's death and gave your very last breath in faith. But what about you? What about me? You know, chances are we're not going to be the next Paul or even close. And quite frankly, that's not even a fair comparison because immediately our minds go to the fact that we have a home and a family to provide for. We have bills to pay and we have family obligations and community obligations that limit our ability to be a traveling preacher and church planner. So what does it mean for us who might not be in full-time ministry? What do we learn from Paul's example? And Paul's example teaches us how our work matters for the kingdom. And it's in the same way Paul's was. It's by investing in eternal things. God's word and people. And there's this great ministry that it helps me, in my mind, make sense of this. It's called Made to Flourish. And it helps connect Sunday's faith to Monday's work. And it's a remarkable resource if you want to have time to go take a look at it. But what they do is help us understand what the Bible says about our work and the general goodness of our labor. And they summarize this idea of what we can 
of, they summarize this idea of how we can love God and love our neighbor through our work by saying this. They say, we believe engaging in work that leads to human flourishing is a primary way we image God. God is a worker, and his work is both intrinsically good and for the good of all creation. Since humans were created in his image, work is a key component component of human dignity. Even in a fallen world, in a primary way we worship and love God and our neighbor. Work, whether paid or unpaid, includes all meaningful and moral activity apart from leisure and rest. Work is fundamentally about contribution, not compensation, and adding value to others. God forms us through our daily work as we collaborate with one another to serve the common good and the power of the Holy Spirit. So our work, even in a fallen world, what we do for 50 years, approximately 90,000 hours and almost a third of our waking hours as an adult is a primary way we worship God and love our neighbor. Same as Paul. And when we think about our work this way in terms of worship and loving our neighbor, the implications begin to be astounding. And I just want to share two of them with you. And I think the first one, for starters, is it erases the common misconception in the church that life has to be lived in two categories. Over here, we have things that we do that are sacred. And then in this category over here, we have things that we do that are secular. And typically, we would put in that sacred category reading your Bible, going to church, it's praying, it's giving your time to go on a missions trip. If I were to pick a few jobs, it would be you're a pastor, a missionary, a monk, a nun, something that fits those categories. And then over here, with the things that are included in secular, we'd put typically our job, what we do from nine to five, being a student if you're a kid, being a stay-at-home parent, chores of any kind tend to fit. Well, that's secular, it's not sacred work. But Martin Luther, um, a famed Reformation leader, author, and theologian, and a brilliant mind when it comes to this, wrote what he called an open letter to the Christian nobility. It was to the church in Rome in 1520, over 500 years ago, and he had this to say about this sacred versus secular divide. He said, it's pure invention, it's fiction, that popes, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate or sacred. While princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate, or secular, there is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one needs to be intimidated by it. And for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office or what they do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve twelve to 13 that we are all one body, yet every member has its own work by which it serves the others. This is because we all have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and are all Christians alike. For baptism, gospel, and faith alone make us spiritual and Christian people. Luther's letter to the church in Rome 500 years ago is relevant to you and me today because it dismantles the idea that our work, what we do from 9 to 5, is relegated to the category of secular. But all work that contributes to the flourishing of others is God's work. And the job we do or the office we hold does not make one more sacred versus secular. So a cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet people alike are consecrated priests and bishops. So our work, what we do for 50 years or 90,000 hours, is not meaningless in vanity, but meaningful and eternal, because it's the primary way we image God and we love our neighbor. The second implication I wanted to share with you today is that 
all work has dignity as we worship God and love our neighbor. And while we tend to think of jobs in terms of like a hierarchy, I need to climb the corporate ladder that the jobs I do at the beginning of my career are not nearly as meaningful as the jobs I do at the end. The gospel makes all things new and all work that contributes to the flourishing of others meaningful. And so over the last several weeks, I can't remember when, um, I follow a page on Instagram called The Good News. And it's just a bunch of journalists putting fun stories, good news stories together just to be an encouragement to others. So it really, it just helps today just to have lighthearted, fun stories. And one of the stories I came across is a great example of how all work has dignity. And it was a letter written from a gentleman to a hairstylist. And I want to read it to you. And here's what I had to say. So this is a little bit awkward, but I've waited a really long time to pass this on to you. My wife and I came in for haircuts shortly before Christmas of last year. My wife was suffering from dementia, and you treated her as if you'd been working with dementia patients all your life. You let us sit next to one another, and when it came time for her haircut, you turned her chair towards me so I could watch her expressions as you cut her hair. It turned out even better than I thought it would. Sadly, she died in March, and that haircut was one of the last best moments of her life. She felt so pretty. She visited the mirror in her bathroom several times during the day and would come out beaming. To see her happy was priceless. Looking back, it was likely one of dozens of haircuts you gave that day, but one which revitalized a woman's sense of self and her singular beauty. I hope you always realize the power of your profession. It's so easy to take things like that for granted. Sincerely, a grateful customer. When our work is viewed as a way we worship God and we love our neighbor. It transforms ordinary, oftentimes meaningless work into worship in a way we love God and love our neighbors. Haircuts become ways that we bestow beauty and dignity and happiness to others. And while I can't sit here and explain what how that works for every profession that would be represented here, Luther again gives us a great framework by which to apply to each and every one of our professions. He said this, he said, the prince should think, Christ has served me and made everything to follow him. Therefore, I should also serve my neighbor, protect him and everything that belongs to him. That is why God has given me this office and I have it that I might serve him. That would be a good prince and ruler. When a prince sees his neighbor oppressed, he should think that concerns me. I must protect and shield my neighbor. The same is true for the shoemaker, tailor, scribe, or reader. If he is a Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. Meaning for you and me, I'm a Christian business person. I'm a Christian teacher, a builder, a stay-at-home parent, an employee. You put your profession there, and I do this. Because God has bidden me to do so. He has given me the talent, the desire, and he's opened up an opportunity for me to work in that job so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. Our work, what we do for 50 years or 90,000 hours, is no longer meaningless and vanity under the sun, but meaningful and eternal because it's the primary way we image God and love our neighbor. Author Tim Challies wrote an article entitled Ordinary Christian Work. And he sums up these two examples by saying this. He said, there'll be some of you who stop working with their hands to go into the mission field. This is good and it honors God. 
but it's not a higher call or a better call or a surer path to pleasing God. We please God. We thrill God when we live as ordinary people in ordinary lives who use our ordinary circumstances to proclaim and live out an extraordinary gospel. So if we go back to the question we asked at the beginning of this, does my job matter for eternity? The answer is a resounding yes. Because of the gospel, our work is not rendered meaningless and vanity through death, but meaningful and eternal through Christ's death on the cross. Like Paul, we can say that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our ordinary work is given eternal significance as we invest in loving God and loving our neighbors through our work. So this week, let's begin seeing our work and our worship, our work as worship and eternal as we love God and love others. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that what we do here on this earth has eternal implications. We're thankful that you transform our work into something that matters. We're grateful for you. We're grateful for that. We're grateful that you have given us the ability to work. God, you're good. We love you. Amen.